This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The outcome was not really a surprise, but the margin was. Aaron O'Toole was ousted as leader of the Conservative Party by an overwhelming majority of caucus. The vote was 73 to 45. Last night, Candace Bergen was named interim leader, but who will be the standard bearer for the future? Suburban Ottawa MP Pierre Polièvre, who has been a guest on this show many times, is widely seen as the front runner. He's a social media star and on the right wing of the party. Other people being touted include Leslyn Lewis, who is a socially conservative black woman, and she came out of nowhere and did really well in the last contest coming in third. Also mentioned by commentators, all four Mulrooney children. And the people who say they're out, well, they include Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, and Patrick Brown, and Peter McKay, but uh, in politics, no does not always mean no. So what do you think? And is there anyone among these people and maybe others that we've been hearing about who can actually unify this party, which seems very, very split? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 7404740. And right now, I am joined by Ashton Arsenault, Vice President with Crestview Strategy based in Ottawa, John McKetition, a conservative political consultant and president of Bradgate Research Group, as well as Bob Richardson, a liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. Hi, guys. Glad to be Hello, with you. Libby. Hi. So let us begin with Ashton. You're in Ottawa. So uh, any surprises there? I don't think it was much of a surprise what happened yesterday. I think, you know, maybe the margin was perhaps a little bit surprising, but we had all been told, you know, through our own individual networks that, um, you know, the opposing O2O camp had the numbers they needed and it was widely reported in the media. And you know, just for color commentary, uh, I know Mr. O'Toole was sort of frantically making calls to caucus colleagues linked into the night before yesterday uh, to try to change people's minds. And obviously that didn't work. And if you're in that situation in the first place, probably not looking good. But, you know, the one thing I'll say to his credit, you know, he certainly fought to the bitter end. And I think ultimately um, now with uh, a pretty steady as she goes uh, interim leader in place, the party can start to focus on next steps. John, do you agree? I mean, it seems to me uh, that the party is extremely divided. So does this leave them in a better spot? I mean, we know that he was not a particularly effective leader. No, at the end of the day, you need a strong leader, uh, especially in opposition. And the reality is, uh, and I was going to say, disagree with my colleague there, uh, it was a, a huge shock to some people in Ottawa and they were be the leader, so Aaron O'Toole, his chief of staff, his campaign manager, and all the people on the payroll. Um, I was getting from in every source inside that they thought they had 80 votes on their side. So they only missed it, uh, the vote, by 100%. And I think that's uh, telling. It goes back to, uh, if you look at uh, Aaron famously came out with a very strong email the night before the vote. And it's like, well, if he'd shown some of that strength and leadership, uh, you know, since the election, he might still have the job, but he's been for the most part missing in action, and now he pays the ultimate price. So the question now for all of us is, who's next? And and you know, <laughs> divided parties. Well, uh, there's one thing that unifies uh, political parties, and uh, you know, there's lots of uh, legendary uh, conflicts in the Liberal Party. Um, but the Conservatives, like the Liberals, if you're not in power, uh, it gives too many people a chance for mischief. And there's one thing that unifies. It's an election. And Aaron O'Toole sought the leadership twice. He won it on the second attempt. 
he blew it on the election when Trudeau was down. He was behind. And then Trudeau uh, pulled from behind those last two weeks. Aaron was basically missing in action and ultimately paid the price. I got to tell you, I, I wonder if the party shouldn't change the Constitution to forget about any kind of re- review mechanism and make it much easier. You either win on election night or you're gone. Well, it's it's almost coming down to that. They don't seem to uh, give their leaders more of a chance, Bob. Uh, you know, the 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 one uh, universal con- commentary I've heard about this is that hey, this is great for the liberals. Well, I, you know, what? I'm going to reserve I'm going to reserve comment on that. Um, they have a number of I think potentially good candidates coming up. I do not underestimate Pierre Polyev. I, I know we'll probably get into that a little bit. Uh, further down the road, but he's tough. He's a good communicator. He's bilingual and he's clear. Uh, you know where he stands. So you know, I I wouldn't uh, underestimate him. I think um, I think uh, Mr. O'Toole, a good man and a good background and worked hard. Uh, I wonder if he got too much too fast politically. Uh, but he made a number of errors in his leadership that he is and his staff, I guess, are responsible for. The manner in which they treated Peter McKay after he won didn't make a lot of sense to me. You should be trying to bring your party together, not shun people. Um, His flip-flopping on issues, uh, he didn't really seem to accept responsibility for the election. He said he did, but he he didn't really seem to uh, do it in a in a concrete uh, uh, manner. So um, so you know, I think those are some of the some of the real reasons why he's he's not leader today. Um, a little bit of it is circumstance, a little bit of it is timing, and a lot of it is uh, errors that he made as leader of the party. Ashton, does this signal the ascendance of the right wing of the party, or does that remain to be seen? I think it largely remains to be seen. I mean, it's very important to understand that, you know, to win the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, you have to appeal to Conservative Party of Canada members. It's that simple, right? So you're not really going to do yourself any favor by trying to appeal to the center or members in other parties. You have to fundamentally, at the end of the day, appeal to the base and you know we'll we'll probably get into the contenders here but an immediate front runner in that category would of course be Pierre Polyev and as you identified off the top he would be you know probably more appreciated in the right side of the party and I think it's just a huge structural advantage to him right off the get-go um, but the competition will be steep like it, it won't be a cakewalk and you know I think to your point directly I think what it is is it's vindication for the Conservative Party of Canada fundamentally needs people with convictions and not people who will continuously bargain to get to places where they ultimately shouldn't be. Hmm. Libby, yes. if I can jump in there. Just, Please. Uh, you you kind of irked me with the, the ascendancy of the right concept. Uh, since this party merged, to be clear, the Reform or the Canadian Alliance Party merged with the old Progressive Conservative Party. And from the founding of that party the modern conservative party, what we have today. We had Stephen Harper, then Scheer, then O'Toole. They're all right-wingers. They all campaigned for leadership as being right-wingers. So I don't know where where people are thinking somehow there's a transition. Uh, Certainly it's a valid conversation if that served them well post-Harper. But it is a right-wing party. And I don't know why anybody's surprised to say, well, people from the right might want to run for the leadership because that's where they are. Well, no, I'm not surprised by it, but but um, Aaron O'Toole was trying to take them to the center, and you have to be more in the center, it seems to me, to to win government. Harper didn't need to do that for nine years. That's true. You, but but as as I said the other day, Aaron O'Toole was no Stephen Harper. Totally true. Uh, so, John, who do you, do you see? Uh, do you see Pierre Polyevre as the front runner and being the front runner at this stage? Is is that a good place to be? Well, uh, it's never a good place to be front runner. I think in leaderships, unless it's you're looking at the results on election day. Um, and and Pierre is interesting and mythical. Uh, everybody's forgetting it was only two years ago when he had a fully ramped up campaign. He had uh, his manager in place. Uh, They were getting ready to have the launch event when, now, here's the best part. He tells the story to the media of, I went home one night and discovered that I had a young child. I should spend time with her. So for me, I'm wondering, I don't think Pierre can enter the race 
and not do, because he's been the number one guy standing up at the House of Commons and talking about integrity. So unless he was to come forward and say, here's the truth about what I lied to you about two years ago. Here's the real reason I didn't run two years ago. Until he does that, I think either he doesn't run or he's uh, mortally wounded by all the other leadership campaigns. They'll keep asking reporters, have you asked him what the truth was? So what is and the what truth, the John? Story? What's the well, real story? That's the I, I don't know. And if he wants to run the leader, run for leader, I want to know, because I don't think, especially for the positions he's taken with every single liberal in the House virtually about integrity, about morality, how he could think of running for leader unless he fesses up and comes clean about the lie he told two years ago. Well, you're 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 definitely suggesting something without without saying it. Uh... I'm absolutely saying, do I believe what he told the media two years ago, that he went home one night and discovered he had a young daughter, and that's the reason he didn't run for leader? Don't believe it for a minute. And I think everybody gave him a pass two years ago, because when someone takes himself out of a race, the media and people in general are kind. But if he's going to come into this race, and he wants to run against Trudeau in the next election, let's be clear. Sheer and O'Toole didn't have major problems, but it was the little things that got them. Right. So there's no way we should be electing anybody who isn't 100 percent transparent. Bob, uh, <laughs> that's quite a curveball for me. What do you have to say? Where's Bob? Oh, he might have fallen off, fallen off his chair. He, he might have fallen off his chair. We're, we'll get him back in a minute. Ashton, what do you make of that? Uh, I mean, that's. Yeah, certainly, uh, it's a, it's a bold assumption. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, you could look at that statement as a metaphor for just generically wanting to spend more time with one family, which I don't think, uh, I would certainly fault anyone for. And to be perfectly clear, I'm not working with any sort of insider knowledge on, you know, what the rationale was there. It seems like a personal choice to me at the time. Uh, I don't think there is anything particularly, uh, you know, stark that Pierre has to answer for. And at the end of the day, his appeal to the Conservative Party of Canada membership is what's going to win the day if he does decide to run. Now, in very early days, right? I mean, you know, uh, leadership candidates uh, haven't announced their campaigns yet. And John is correct. Uh, he was fully ramped up two years ago, ready to go. Um, we were all having the same type of conversations that we're having right now. But ultimately, at the end of the day, decided not to run. Do I know why? No. He told everybody it was for family reasons. I take him at face value on that. Uh, Bob, uh, <laughs> did we lose you because you fell off your chair? The suggestion from John <laughs> that there's That's- some kind of a dark reason, perhaps, that Polyevra did not run two years ago. Yeah, sorry, Libby. Uh, John made me fall off my chair there. You know, <laughs> uh, look, um, I-, I did think it was a little odd two years ago when he pulled out because it was, you know, pretty clear that he was uh, going to be in the race and one of the kind of leading candidates. Um, I haven't seen or heard any evidence to suggest that there's any malfeasance or other things going on. So I'm going to take a pass on that. Uh, I happen to think he will be a tough candidate. Uh, number one, he'll be a tough candidate to beat, um, you know, to become the conservative leader. And then I think he'll be a tough conservative leader. Uh, he's a good communicator. He's bilingual. Uh, I think he will do a better job managing the caucus, and I think there will be more clarity on issues, which I think is important in the Conservative Party when you're trying to kind of balance a variety of uh, of factions. Uh, and this guy is focused, um, and his timing is better too. It's always better uh, to come in and be a leader of a party um, when the uh, when the government has been in two, three, or four elections. Because regardless of what party it is, they start to get a little long in the tooth. So, you know, it, he probably has an increased chance of, uh, of winning. So um, I would say that he has pretty decent odds. There's a couple of other candidates out there who could be. I think Leslie Lewis probably did best last time out. Um, uh, uh, that being said, she will definitely have a following, I think, of the Conservative Party. And, uh, you know, if Patrick Brown did get in, I think he would be a formidable opponent. He is tough. He's organized. He's run in a leadership before. Um, he has strong uh, t- 
ties into a whole variety of ethnocultural uh, communities. So uh, I think he could be an interesting candidate as well. Well, uh, I read, so we're trying to reach him. We talk to him all the time. Uh, I read that he said no, but he's being courted. Uh, I would think uh, that would be something that would be appealing to him. But, you know, we we don't chat at that level all the time. Um, the one thing I did hear negatively about Polly is, is that he polls badly with women. Is that a big factor, Ashton? Uh, well, I mean, it's certainly something that you have to be considerate of in a general election. There's no doubt about that. But like, again, this is, this is a two-step process. This is not a, a one and done. And, you know, the leader is the leader and the leader becomes the prime minister. It's a two-step process. And first and foremost, you have to appeal to the membership of the Conservative Party of Canada. And at this stage, in what is a very nascent race, absolutely not a single other thing matters. Do the members like him and will they support him more than any other candidate? Right now, if I were taking odds, I would say yes. John, the other thing uh, that, that I have to say I find vaguely amusing is that in the past couple of days, I have heard commentators talk about every one of the four Mulroney children. Well, you know, uh, it's not just Canadians. People across the world love stars. They love rock stars. And, uh, you know, as close as, you know, they say politics is, you know, Hollywood for ugly people. And uh, the they're Mulroney, not ugly. <laughs> no, I was going to say the Mulroney children uh, uh, put the, 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 you know, the truth of there is that they're, they're among the most good looking people you'd ever find thinking of politics. Uh, certainly. Uh, no slouch, you know, Justin Mr. Trudeau. Mr. Well, I was going to say Minister Mulroney in Ontario. I mean, she is a rock star, but that doesn't mean they're qualified to run for leader, and it doesn't mean they'll perform well. Uh, Caroline came into the uh, uh, last leadership in Ontario, uh, you know, out of the blue, and shocked everybody at how poorly she performed. So, you know, be having a name, and, and the other person I would think of is, uh, you know, as a, as a young lad, uh, I looked at the Liberal Party and the the great white hope there was a guy that, uh, uh, you know, he went on to be the, I think, the shortest living or serving uh, prime minister ever. Uh, but when, you know, he came out of uh, retirement to run, uh, it had all been print media that I knew of him. When I saw him in front of a camera, he didn't perform well. So leaderships are meant to test the aspirants. They're, they're actually meant to make sure that somebody qualified and competent and performing can make it. And if you look at the Ontario thing, um, you know, Ms. Mulroney came in third. So, you know, it's great to have all these names. And, and here's the, here's the thing about all stars. So Pierre, for example, totally a star, as was McKay. But if you look at the over 20 candidates that ran in the last two federal leaderships for the conservatives and the last provincial one, there was really, in due respect to the current premier of Ontario, there was only one uh, A-level rock star based on experience at that point in time, and that would have been McKay, and he lost badly. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's hard to call either Shearer or O'Toole uh, rock stars. Uh, Bob, do you think uh, there's anything to this touting of the kids? There's Mark, who's a banker. Then I heard someone say that actually the really smart one is the young one, Nicola. Yeah, no, I think the one political one is Mark Mulroney. I believe he's at uh, Scotiabank right now. I think he's vice chair of investment banking or something of that nature. Um, he is bright, capable, bilingual, uh, personable guy when you meet him. I don't know him that well. I've met him. Uh, he strikes me as probably uh, the natural heir to the, to the political uh, piece. Uh, I think his brothers are not that interested and. uh you know, his, his sister's kind of cast her lot provincially, and I don't think he's necessarily interested in the, in the federal house. Uh, but I think that's a couple of elections away. I think he's, you know, he's got lots of kids, and he's busy uh, making money and, uh, you know, building a career for himself on Bay Street. And I think if he runs, uh, it would be down the road. Hmm. Uh, okay, so uh, what are some other names out there, Ashton? Uh, I'll put two on the board. Um, we haven't talked much about Quebec. I think uh, yeah. a strong candidate coming out of that province would be Gerard Deltel. 
Um, he is, uh, you know, in the Quebec sense, certainly a rock star within the Conservative uh, Party of Canada caucus. Um, I would say he's pretty close to 100% fully bilingual. Um, you know, struggles in French, uh, sorry, English periodically, but like otherwise very understandable. Great personality, great charisma. So if he decides to run, I think uh, you certainly couldn't ignore him. Um, and another name I'll put on the board, I know that there's a lot of uh, sort of draft Rana um, uh, people out there. She's pretty much said firmly that she's not going to run, but I haven't heard from James Moore. I know that uh, he was in the conversation the last time around as well. I haven't heard from him yet. Be interesting. Obviously, former uh, Harper era cabinet minister. So those would be another two names. But again, early days, there will be more that will come out of the woodwork. Well, yeah, sure. Ronna, Ronna Ambrose has said she is definitely not interested. I, I'm inclined to believe her. Um, yeah, I mean, what what's there to say about that? Uh, and I gather that a, a big factor will be the rules around the contest, how much money you need to get in, and how long it's going to be, John. Right, so I, that's actually where I wanted to go, that, you know, we can all think of the wish list. It's almost like writing Santa a letter for grown-ups and trying to figure out who you'd want to run for the leadership of any political party. But the reality here is, what is the date of the leadership? How long of a contest is it going to be? What's the budget they're going to they're going to have? And uh, what are the rules? So the rules last time for the Conservatives were written in a way that made it. They thought they were creating hurdles because they didn't want another situation where they had thirteen people on a stage. So they made the hurdles so big they were actually barricades. So. You know, I started off in the last leadership managing Leslie Lewis, who came to the table with virtually no political experience at all and a, and a budget of 900000 with no real plan to raise any of it. And by the end of, you know, and I got her into the race into third place. Good job. Which was not, which was not, which was not easy. But then she went on to raise $2.1 million. So in a world of appetite for complete unknown people, virtually anybody can come into this thing, depending upon the rules. And I'm going to say the same rules, though, kept out uh, Meriden Gladue wanted to be leader. She couldn't get enough signatures. Um, the, uh, Peterson, who ran and had the list from the previous leadership, because none of us had, we didn't have a list. So he had, he, you know, he had a list and he couldn't get people to sign. So the rules are vital. And I'm going to suggest that if it's a, uh, an early leadership, which I'm hoping it's not, because I would hope this would be a good opportunity for conservatives to figure out what they want in a leader before we pick one. If it's early, if it's June, then Mr. Ford, Premier Ford running, absolute impossible not happening, because he's going to election June 2nd. If it's in 2023, the reality is that, you know what? The Premier can take six months to a year running a leadership, because was he going to run again for re-election? Is he going to do his third election? Not likely. So he'd be more than available to change levels of government, retire, and create an opportunity for other people at the provincial level. So the timing on this thing is as important as the budget and whatever the rules are. Okay. A very interesting conversation. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're out of time, so I'll go around 20 seconds to everybody, starting with Ashton. Yeah, look, I think it's I think it's early days. Uh, I think the uh, Conservative Party of Canada Caucus was smart um, to appoint uh, what was formerly the deputy leader uh, as the interim leader. Uh, I think she'll be capable at making sure the ship doesn't hit the rocks uh, between now and when the ultimate leader is chosen. Uh, again, very early days. I think John is absolutely right. The, the rules that they set up for this race are going to be mission critical, and it will dramatically narrow down who is actually able to get together what they need to run versus not. And I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, when that becomes clear, the odds on favor on who's going to win will become much clearer. Bob? Uh, Pierre Polivare in the pole position, but it's early yet. And um, the road in Canada is littered with um, with uh, front runners in leadership races. So uh, that's my caution. It's uh, way too early to tell yet, but uh, he is positioned well. John, last 20 seconds um, to you. I, I would say that the last two leaderships were won by people that the media discounted and never saw coming. And I'm hoping to look forward to manage a campaign for someone who does that for the third time. Okay. <laughs> and, and we'll be chatting to you about it. In the meantime, thank you so much, Ashton Arsenault, John McAdition, and Bob Richardson. We really appreciate it. Bye-bye. 
Have a good Thanks. day. Love you. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to check in with uh, an Ottawa resident and a business person about how that never-ending protest, some are calling it siege, uh, is affecting them when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. So, the remaining convoy protesters are still out there in Ottawa blocking roads, preventing businesses from doing business, and unfortunately, also harassing people. They say they won't leave until all pandemic restrictions are listed. lifted. Excuse me. Some say more protesters will join them this weekend. Ottawa police have mused about calling in the military, something the Prime Minister has dismissed for now. And rather than getting into the politics, I just want to look at how all of this is affecting the people who live and work there. I'd like to hear from you, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Sarah Chown, who is the managing partner of the Metropolitan Brasserie in Ottawa and the Ottawa Regional Chair of the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel and Motel Association, and my good friend, Patricia Wilson, who lives not far from the Hill. Thank you both for being with us. Thanks for having us. Let us begin with Sarah. So uh, you were all set to reopen partially on Monday. How has this hit you? Yeah, you you got it. We were really looking forward to to Monday. We were going to finally open our doors for indoor dining since the beginning of uh, January would be the first time. And we had to make the difficult choice to stay closed on Monday. We we closed on Saturday for takeout services as well. Uh, our property was completely inaccessible for drivers to pick up Uber orders. So um, we had to close that down early as well. And needless to say, we're feeling pretty deflated. Uh, I would imagine. Pat, uh, how has it affected you? What happened on your street and, you know, in your circle? Um, well, um, we're relatively unaffected because we uh, were about a kilometer and a half away from Parliament Hill. Uh, but on Saturday um, and uh, last weekend, on Saturday and Sunday, uh, we were visited on our street by flatbeds and pickup trucks um, with oversized flags, um, hear um, uh, a horns blaring uh, as they went down the street, um, uh, people yelling. Uh, um, uh, they didn't get a great reception around here, but um, the, because there was a lot of policing on Parliament Hill, um, some of the um, more adventurous element of the protest uh, came to visit the neighbourhoods. And uh, you uh, had some pretty disturbing stories about what happened to uh, a, a friend of yours who works in hotels. Yes, my friend, my friend who um, uh, works in a downtown hotel, um, uh, reported that um, uh, lots of people uh, from the protest were using the hotel uh, facilities, um, uh, primarily the washrooms. Um, um, and she and her co-workers, of course, were cleaning, um, and some of the protesters uh, were staying there. Um, she said some were quiet um, and uh, polite, but the majority were rude um, and angry, uh, and that, they, that she and her co-workers, while trying to do their work at the hotel um, as cleaners, were yelled at to remove their masks um, People came quite close to them uh, without masks to yell at them to do that. And they called them various names because they're visible um, immigrants. Um, she said that they just pretended, the co-workers, and she just pretended not to hear them and took the stairs with their carts um, so that they didn't have to get in the elevator um, with them. Um, and more than that, that um, when it was time for their shift to end and go home, they were blocked from getting to the public transit. Um, and so the hotel had to offer them and did offer them uh, places uh, like a rooms in the hotel to stay uh, because they weren't able to get home. Wow. Uh, Sarah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I want to talk about your situation and excuse me, I've heard a lot about the horns blaring that, that it's basically driving people nuts because it's incessant. Yeah, you got it. That's exactly it. I I don't know if you can hear it. I'm at the restaurant right now, um, but it's an incessant nonstop blaring of horns. I mean, even, even if people could access our business at this point, it's, it's not an atmosphere that anyone would be looking to dine in. You can't turn the music up loud enough to drown the sound out. And it, it goes on from, you know, the crack of dawn until late into the evening. And sometimes there's loud music playing or a little bit of a dance party on the corner too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's loud and it's, it's a form of torture to be honest. I'm just, I, I, I was hearing it in the background for a minute or two, but, uh, uh, not right at, the moment and you can't operate. Uh, so it's, it's stopped you from offering your takeout business as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, where we are located, I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar, but we're at the corner of Sussex and Wellington. So essentially, you know, diagonal from the Rideau center and we're the first restaurant you hit when you come down from parliament Hill, if you're heading into the Bywork market. So we're literally right at the heart of it. And there's, there's no car access. You can't get in here. You, you could get in on a bike if you wanted to, I suppose, but uh, that's about it. You know, there's just, it's, it's simply inaccessible. And what are you doing at the restaurant? Oh, well, just keeping an eye on things, responding to emails, calling reservations, canceling them, trying to keep an eye on the situation and see if there's any sort of light at the end of the tunnel to look forward to, but it doesn't seem like that at this point. And and uh, are, are you worried about your premises or anything like that? I, I just, I'm not too concerned about damage right now. I mean, we've had our fair share of instances of urination and littering and people are sleeping in the lobby and, you know, a number of things like that. But it's, it, I haven't had any confrontations per se. I mean, there's heckling when you're crossing the street to come in here if you're wearing a mask and uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's quite intimidating for sure, but um, haven't had any severe confrontations at this point. Uh, Pat, what do you make of it? I mean, the police have said they can't really clear it. Are, are you worried that this is just going to get bigger again? Uh, Trudeau said mm, he doesn't think he wants to bring the military in. <clears throat> There's some talk of the RCMP helping out. Yeah, um, well, the um, the police um, are are... Uh, trying to avoid a confrontation, I think, is is what they're trying to do. But that really, to my mind, starts to look like accommodation as opposed to managing the situation. And um, everybody's kind of saying, well, it's not my department <laughs> to try and fix this. And all indications are that it's going to rev up again on the weekend. Um, and that's not going to be any good for anybody, really. Uh, so... Um, uh, I think regular people who are living downtown, in in particular, trying to run businesses downtown or um, working downtown, are going to continue to be, um, as Sarah said, tortured with the noise and um, uh, unable to really see a way out unless somebody does something about it. Sarah, who would you like to see? What would you like to see the police or the RCMP or the military do? We certainly need something done. I mean, we're very frustrated and Canada Day festivities and rallies that impede our service here. But the difference is that these people are now occupying our downtown core. And while the politicians are going back and forth trying to figure out what to do and who's going to do it, small businesses like ours, employees that continue to suffer, the residents here, um, you know, who it is that comes in and fixes it doesn't bother me, but it needs to be someone and it needs to happen rapidly. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a plan in case it goes on for a while? At this point, you know, there is no plan. What we, even if we could open, nobody wants to be here. Um, and the situation is, quite frankly, untenable. We, we can't continue to operate like this, well, hemorrhaging money, no revenue coming in, government programs drying up. Um, we can't survive and our employees can't continue to live on the lockdown benefit. Hmm. Pat, uh, w- what about you? Yeah, I, I think um, all the um, parties, the, the, the city, um, the bylaw enforcement officers and the, um, and the police, uh, including uh, the RCMP because they have jurisdiction um, on Parliament Hill in Wellington, um, I have to think creatively about this. I mean, 
this is a different kind of protest because um, the protesters, they've, they've weaponized their vehicles. And there's no other way to put it. I mean, they are using those trucks and pickups um, as vehicles, and it's being done in an organized fashion to inflict um, uh, disruption um, on the rest of the city and and uh, with severe um, mental health consequences to those around them. So there, there has to be... Um, uh, noise bylaws that can be enforced. Um, this is really the time for the parking bylaw officers to shine if they would get out there and do that. Um, and start to, um, push back a little bit, um, without, uh, without undue aggression, et cetera, et cetera. But just to, um, let the organizers of the protest know that the trucks and the pickups aren't going to be tolerated as a, as a congestion mechanism and as a noise-making um, imposition on the city. Sarah, I've heard people say, you know, uh, this isn't the only time we've seen a protest that turns into an occupation, either uh, on a rail line or out in BC. Uh, what do you say to those people? Jeez, I, I guess it's, that's true, but it's certainly the first we've seen here. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know. It, but the demonstrators aren't hurting politicians at this point. They're just hurting small businesses and restaurants in the downtown. Like, I, I don't know what to say in comparison to other occupations, but, but this clearly is an occupation at this point. It's not simply a protest anymore. Okay, I'm going to take a quick call from Jan in Guelph. Hi, Jan. Hi. Um I takes me back to when I lived in England. I, we came here in 1963, and they had protests in London. And you know what they did to get rid of the protesters? They got fire trucks, surrounded them, and they counted to ten and said, if you don't move, you'll get wet. And they did hose them, and they got drenched, and they moved, and they were threatened with that, that if they did that anywhere else, that's what would happen to them. <laughs> Clearly, that's not on the table no, here. I know, but I'm just telling you, I'm adding some humor to the show. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jan. Uh, that's about all the time we have for this segment. Uh, 20 seconds. Uh, Patricia, what would you like to leave us with? Um, everyone stay safe. Um, uh, please use your words and not, not other things to get your points across, everybody. <laughs> and Sarah. I would just say, you know, keep us in your minds and remember we're suffering here and we need help and we need this to, to wrap up and we need to get back to business for, for our employees and for our, our restaurants. Uh, we certainly hope you're able to. And uh, meanwhile, we're hearing that the protest may be coming here to Toronto this weekend. We'll have to see. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Chown and Patricia Wilson. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thanks, Libby. Bye. Bye. We're taking another break. When we come back, uh, opening ceremonies for the Olympics are on tomorrow morning. Are you going to be watching? Do you care? We'll have that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is going to be another COVID Olympics. The opening ceremonies in Beijing will be held tomorrow morning. And this time there's a huge brew of politics also in the mix. There was a lot of pressure for Western countries to boycott the games because of huge human rights abuses against Uyghurs, because of Hong Kong, because of the hostage taking of the two Michaels who have recently been released. So governments settled on a so-called diplomatic boycott. That means uh, no big shots are going to the party. Meantime, athletes have been warned about speaking out against these abuses, against even using their own phones because of surveillance, and they're pretty well locked down in the Olympic Village. So, are you going to be watching? Do you care? What do you think? Uh, is it right that uh, we're even there in the way that we are? One of the arguments was we shouldn't punish athletes. Uh, 
I'm wondering why they got the games in the first place. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Tim Elcombe, Associate Professor of Kinesiology and Physical Education at Wilfrid Laurier University. He's also a fellow of the Balsillie School of International Affairs. And Dr. Laura Meisner, Executive Council Member at Western's International Center for for Olympic Studies and Director of Western School of Kinesiology. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks Happy for Happy to be here. Dr. Elcombe, uh, are these Olympics, are, are people going to be watching? Uh, are they going to have the same kind of impact Olympics usually do? Oh, that's a hard question. I, I think it's going to be a unique one. I think there's going to be a lot more attention on the political side than there maybe has uh, in quite a number of years, maybe ever, in terms of the modern media. So on that side, it's maybe going to draw some interest that otherwise wouldn't be there for the Winter Olympics. And on the sporting side, it's hard to say, you know, you know, with lockdowns, whether people will be turning in to watching the Olympics or whether sort of the modern media form means that diverted attentions that they won't watch. So it'd be interesting to see if the political interest sort of ramps up viewership and interest. Dr. Meisner, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a difficult to, question to really answer because we don't know what the reaction will be from the general public in terms of uh, spectatorship. Certainly the Winter Games doesn't draw the same level of viewership that the Summer Games do, so it's hard to have direct comparisons to, say, Tokyo and the games that were just held, but you know, there's a lot of different things at play. The political situation is um, you know, really pre- prevalent, and people might either take that as a, an interesting perspective to look at to see how athletes uh, prevail in, in the face of these kinds of situations, or they might just turn away and say, forget it, I'm not going to be involved in this because of the, you know, their support and, and their position in boycotting the, the watching of the games uh, based on the situation. Dr. Elcombe, I mean, it, it seems like the athletes, I mean, presumably they weren't boycotted, the games weren't boycotted, not to punish the athletes. They seem to be, you know, under all kinds of restrictions. They are locked up. Uh, there are a bunch of COVID cases in the Olympic Village. They've been told not to speak out by the IOC. They've been told, like, don't bring your phones, like, bring a burner phone because uh, there's going to be surveillance. I mean, is does does that seem right that the athlete should have to compete under those constraints? Well, it's part of the reality, I think, when you know China was awarded these Olympic Games, is that some of these restrictions were likely going to be in place whether there was a pandemic or not. I think the pandemic has sort of amplified some of those restrictions. You know, they've got the closed-loop system in place where effectively athletes are, are very restricted in terms of their movements and, and, and accessibility. Um, it'd be interesting to get an athlete's perspective from the standpoint that, you know, a lot of them, you know, in competition, you know, they are very focused and locked down and, and in some ways want to avoid some of these restrictions anyways. And so some athletes might actually find the fact that, that all these sort of extra, I mean, in some ways there's extra attention and extra pressures placed on them, but in some ways it might almost be easier for them to just focus on their events. So I think it's going to be, again, it's it's one of those unknowns and interesting mix that these Winter Games seem to have brought about, unlike any others. Uh, uh, Laura Meisner, uh, do you agree? Yeah, I do think it's a it's an interesting situation and a challenge, I think, for athletes in terms of sort of the bubble experience is that they're not getting to experience the, you know, the bigger parts of what games are about. Absolutely, it will, may allow them to focus on the events and, and really have, um, you know, a really targeted effort towards that. But part of the games experience and part of the draw for the Olympic Games is the, you know, the multi-sport environment, getting to go and see other athletes from around the world in different events, interacting with, uh, you know, people from different cultures around the world, being part of the broader environment and where the event is being hosted. And so really they're missing out on that entire experience. So, you know, I think we're going to see some really great sport and some excellent performances, but, you know, the broader part of being part of these games is really lost on this particular event. I want to talk a little bit about the IOC. I mean, they've been criticized. And uh, one of the precursors to this whole event was uh, the 
incident, I, I, I don't even know what to call it, the story with Peng Shui, the tennis player, uh, who uh, disappeared for a while after she accused a high official of sexual assault, and then she emerged a bit to say, no, just kidding. I mean, where is the IOC in all of this, and have they lost some of their stature, uh, Dr. Meisner? Well, I think the IOC is losing a lot of credibility for some of the things that are going on around these games and, and in Tokyo. But these games in particular, we know of the significant political situation, the human rights uh, atrocities that have happened um, throughout this. And yet the IOC is washing their hands of it and saying it's not our responsibility to be involved in politics. And, and they continue to you know, draw on the idea that the Olympic movement and the Olympic solidarity is about um, this peaceful activities and these peaceful sporting opportunities and reality ignoring the the issues at hand. And I think that's causing them real problems. And countries around the world are, are stepping up and saying that this isn't acceptable. Um, and so I think the IOC is in, in real jeopardy of, of, you know, some really scandalous situations if they don't get their house in order and, and re- really do something about the decisions that they're making, where they're hosting games, what's it looking like for the athletes and the countries that are involved. Uh, Dr. Alcombe, I mean, the IOC, who can... Uh, who can uh... Who can deal with them? Well, they've shown that the ability to withstand pressure, um, you know, even from pretty significant and important states, including the American government, uh, certainly the Canadian government as well, you know, they are a pretty powerful organization. Um, and depending on the year and the host, they always have at least, you know, some support and, and people behind them. And, you know, I think Peng Shui uh, uh, issue sort of, you know, showed that, you know, that they were willing to, to really, in, in some ways, show support to the Chinese officials by getting involved, you know, where, where they talk about staying out of these things and staying politically neutral. Uh, yet they chose to sort of participate in that. And I think they thought maybe it was uh, going to be helpful, uh, but I think it's, it's certainly backfired. You know, their, their view is that in order for the Olympics to do its best work, they must remain politically neutral. That in order to bring the world together to do these things, they have to sort of take this, that sport has to rise above the political fray or else it can't do its wonderful things. So, you know, that, that's the position they keep coming back to. Um, and, and, you know, whether or not that that's reasonable in these sort of days and circumstances, it's, it's, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, it's, it seems... Uh as an outsider, it seems fairly hypocritical, and the whole thing, uh, you know, has the aspect of a boondoggle, if I, if I may say so, Laura. I, I mean, are is there continued? I don't know. Is is there any jeopardy for them? Well, I think the real pressure is only going to come when there is a focus from the media and from the sponsors. So really, it's about when the money starts talking and being removed from what's actually happening, are we going to see some change in the IOC? You know, they really function like no other organization in the world. There is no sort of international law that holds them to particular account. And so it's going to have to be to those those stakeholders and those partners who are the economic supports of the IOC and the games that need to call them to account if we're going to see changes. Because I think at this point, there's too much embroiled in what National Olympic Committees are beholden to the IOC and following their their position on things, that it's going to take an outside sources and really a removal of those resources to have to see some significant change in the positioning. Tim, uh, what should we be looking for? What are our big hopeful events? Well, certainly hockey, uh, women's hockey in particular. I think you know the Canadian and American battle will continue. Um, from a broader sport perspective, it would be nice to see other countries enter into that fray to, to raise the level of women's hockey internationally. But it looks as though that will be the same. Um, so, and, and certainly in, in, in uh, events like snowboarding, Canada has been strong. Um, you know, and there's other sports where it seems as if maybe there's a bit of a rebuild. So overall, you know, it's going to be interesting. Uh, but the big question when it comes to performance is, of course, um, you know, you're one positive test away from the entire, you know, favorites being lost or, or, you know, you know, who, who will medal contenders sort of stepping up and, and who is dealing with the unique circumstances. So I think even on the performance side, the, the, you know, the larger forces are going to play a, a bigger role in these Olympic games than we've ever seen. So that, that's something to be interesting to see on the sporting side. 
Uh, on the sporting side, too, Laura, what about curling? I guess we lost the first match, but that's happened before. Yeah, it has happened before, and and certainly we we have still we're still in the mix. I think that's an important piece, you know. And and I think we should look be also looking at speed skating and and some of the real record that we have there. And of course, Charles Hamlin now being our flag bearer, some real opportunities to be thinking about what's going on. But as Tim points out, you know, it is really going to be an interesting situation to watch because um, we could see you know players not being involved, athletes dropping out, you know, because if they test positive, and we already know that. The, that COVID is circulating in the village and, and in that bubble, that there's a real possibility that we're going to see a really different landscape of athletes participating. So that's something we'll just have to keep an eye on and see how that impacts our team. Uh, what about the opening ceremonies tomorrow? Uh, is it going to have the usual pageantry or what? It will absolutely have the pageantry. Um, China will do uh, everything they can to make sure it's a good show. And so I have no doubt that you will see quite the spectacle. Um, it will be a safe spectacle and there will be a show of, of what they have been able to achieve in terms of safety. But um, no doubt there will be quite the spectacle to watch during the opening ceremony. Okay, Dr. Tim Elcombe, last 20 seconds to you. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting that the way China presents itself. I mean, part of the reason why China is hosting these games is a lot of other nations are disinterested in hosting because of the cost. And a lot of that was ramped up by Beijing hosting the first time. So uh, it's undoubted, uh, undoubtedly they will be um, trying to display their nation. And, and the opening ceremonies is that first place where they will do it. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Laura Meisner and Dr. Tim Elcombe. And uh, enjoy the games. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. We want to hear from you. Maybe you couldn't get through during the week, or maybe you have something to add. Uh, we still have that big convoy of truckers in Ottawa. We want to know what you think. We had Aaron O'Toole ousted, uh, so we have a, a big void in the Conservative Party. Um, there's lots to talk about, but then again, there always is. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.